Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 1. So we've been spending some time looking at encounters with God uh, in, in especially the Hebrew Bible, and we've been spending a lot of time in some of the, uh, the prophets. So like, like First and Second Kings kind of giving this, not the prophets, I guess, more like the historical books of the Older Testament. And we've been looking at different stories, especially in First Kings and in Second Kings. Now we're going to back up a chapter or two, or a book or two, and we're going to look at something from the book of First Samuel chapter 1. First Samuel chapter 1. Um, begins the story, kind of First and Second Samuel, you could, you could talk about as um, the beginning before David all the way to kind of the end of David. And in fact, if you were to put a, an idea of what's behind the book of First and Second Samuel, because again, this is a scroll all put into one, later split into two, most scholars believe. This is what some scholars call history from God's perspective. And the, the date of authorship happens after the death of David, most likely, before um, the the, um, before the exile, but after the divided kingdom. So written somewhere between 930 and 723 BCE. Um, and, but the purpose of the book of First and Second Samuel, uh, as noted by Dr. Winfred Neely, is this, to encourage people living in Judah at the time of the divided kingdom to walk with the Lord in bold faith and to honor him in all circumstances. So we're going to zoom in on the story of a person whose name is Hannah this morning. Hannah. And we're going to look at some of the things that Hannah goes through in, in learning what it means to follow God in a very, very dark time. Because Hannah is, is part of Israel during a time that's called the Judges. Uh, we looked at this when we studied the book of Ruth. The, the whole book of Ruth is set in the context of the Judges. And the key idea behind the context of the Judges is it's a time when people do what's right in their own eyes and there is no king in Israel. That's what the end of Judges says. So when Hannah comes on the scene, in the beginning scene of 1 Samuel chapter 1, what we find is she's set into a context that's really, really tough because she is walking out what it means to honor God amidst the people who do not want to honor God. And her husband, Elkanah, is also walking that path. And we're going to see in just this beginning glimpse of the book of 1 Samuel today how God uses a person going through incredible grief, incredible sorrow, incredible pain. He uses her life to be someone who shouts loudly for Christ in the generation in which she lived. In fact, she is hope-filled because her hope is not in her circumstances, even though her circumstances are really tough. Her hope is in the Lord. And so that's kind of what we're talking about as we talk about 1 Samuel chapter 1 this morning. So towards the beginning of your Bible, I hope you are there by now as we uh, find how God is moving and acting and being faithful to his covenant and to his people in this book. What I want to do for our scripture reading today, oftentimes we'll stand and we'll read the entire thing. I'm just going to take section by section as we go through. Um, so I, I want us to go ahead and read the first eight verses here, and then we'll talk about it for a little while, and we'll pick up the next section, and then we'll pick up the final uh, section. Sound good? All right, awesome. Read with me, please. You may remain seated, um, but recognize this is the word of the Lord. 
There was a man from Ramathaim, Zophim, in the hill country of Ephraim. His name was Elkanah, son of Jehoram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives, the first named Hannah and the second named Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah was childless. This man would go up to his town every year to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, or Pinchas in Hebrew, were the Lord's priests. Whenever Elkanah offered a sacrifice, he always gave portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to each of her sons and daughters. But he gave a double portion to Hannah, for he loved her even though the Lord had kept her from conceiving. Her rival would taunt her severely just to provoke her because the Lord had kept Hannah from conceiving. Whenever she went up to the Lord's house, her rival taunted her in this way every year. Hannah wept and would not eat. Hannah, why are you crying? Her husband Elkanah said, why won't you eat? Why are you troubled? Am I not better to you than ten sons? we begin to read this and study it, would you pray with me, please? Our Father and our King, as we open up the scriptures, we ask, Lord, that you would teach us and guide us, that you would help us to see the truth of what's been written to ages past and learn how to apply it in ages present. God, I pray that you'd give us a great glory for your name and that you would do a mighty work in and through us by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want you to sit in these first couple of verses. Hope will come later, but I want you to sit where this character, this person, Hannah, is at. Just look at some of the things that are described. There's, there's a guy by the name of Elkanah. Elkanah is a Levite. He, he's a person who honored Yahweh. He, he comes up to worship at Shiloh, which is where the tabernacle, or the Ark of the Tabernacle is at during this time. I'll show you a picture in a minute. He comes up to worship <coughs> every year. <laughs> he has this built into their family process. Now, he also, he, he's married to Hannah. He's also married to a person named Penina. Now, this is not a green light on polygamy. <laughs> in, in fact, the scripture says in Genesis that marriage is to, be between, is to be between a man and a woman for life, right? That's the biblical idea of marriage. Um, but in this, like, we see a lot of pain that comes from this situation, which is just kind of another, okay, this is, this is tough. Um, this isn't the only time this has happened, though. Some of the reasons why someone might take two wives back in the ancient period was maybe the first couldn't have a son or a daughter, and there'd be no one to hand off that whole household to. Um, we see this, for example, with Abraham. Uh, Abraham and Sarah were promised a, a child by the Lord, and then they kind of went and they did their own thing, trying to um, fulfill God's covenant promise through Sarah's maidservant. Right? And that didn't turn out terribly well, and this also does not turn out terribly well for this family, because what you have in these first opening verses is you have a husband, Elkanah, and you have two wives, and it is not a happy place to be, especially for a person named Hannah. Hannah was probably the first wife <clears throat> that Elkanah had. He loved her greatly, 
but, but we see that she was childless. We, we get that in verse 2, and, and that should kind of strike us a little bit, because to be childless in this ancient period was sometimes thought to be something that would bring shame upon yourself. You might begin to wonder, why is it that I can't have a child? And, and, and you try to do everything you can in order to make that happen. You see that in the story of, um, of Abraham. You see that... Uh, also in the story of the other patriarchs, Isaac and his son Rebekah, and Jacob and his sons Rachel and uh, Leah, specifically Rachel. But what you have here is a person who would go to worship the Lord of hosts every year at a place called Shiloh. Now it's interesting, this is the first place that the phrase Lord of hosts or God of armies is used. Uh, in Hebrew, it's the name Yahweh Sabaoth. You know, so when you sing, a mighty fortress is our God, Lord Sabaoth is name, it's saying that he is a God of armies. And this is an ancient Hebrew from the 8th century. This is written down. And here's what they're doing. They're going from here in a place called Ramah, which is just to the west of the northern part of the Dead Sea. You've got Jerusalem right here. It's, it's most likely this place of Ramah. There's a little bit of discussion as to which ancient location it is. We're going to go with this one for today, um, and I'll let you study that later. But this one kind of in the hill country of Judea here, they're going up um, a measure of 15 or 16 miles to a place called Shiloh or Shiloh. And that's where the ark is at during this time. And it's probably not just the ark. There's probably a semi-permanent structure that's here. And this is Shiloh. This is actually modern-day Shiloh. This is the, the tell where you can see some of the things that are going on there. Here is what scholars believe on the right-hand side of your screen here is where the tabernacle could have been placed given the terrain and all of that going on. And you can see some of the, the small, small excavations going on there. Here's another <coughs> aerial of this area from the northwest side. I, I, just, I like to get pictures in front of you so that we see that these are real people, real places, and things happened here that matter in the story of God. So Elkanah, Penina, Hannah, they're all going up to Shiloh, and they're going up to worship the Lord of hosts, the God of armies, the first time that thing is used. And so Elkanah gives the sacrifice, and he gives portions of the meat. Th these were intended to be celebratory meals, where you would gather around with your family, and you would celebrate God's goodness. We don't know whether this is one of the major three festivals within the Jewish calendar, or if this was another time, but they're gathering there every year. They're worshiping the Lord of hosts, and in the midst of this, great joyous time comes a lot of heartache, especially for Hannah. Hannah is childless, and notice the words that are used here. Like, we, we see that Elkanah <clears throat> loves both of his wives. Like, he gives portions to Penina. He gives a double portion to Hannah, for he loved her even though the Lord had kept her from conceiving. So, so there's this, there's this uh, uh, effective love and decisive love and active love from her husband. Um, but her rival, verse 6, would, would taunt her severely just to provoke her. Like, just imagine that. He, here, your rival, the other wife in this uh, relationship goes, we're coming up to worship again. Maybe she's holding one of the babies on her hip, and she's like, it's too bad that you don't have any kids. <laughs> Maybe she's over here going, oh, it's so great to be a mother. And every word she says, whatever those words are, are like daggers in the heart of Hannah because she longs to be a mom. So much so that as she gives these daggers down into her, her life, um, 
she, she taunts her. And, and the idea of the word here in verse 6, it can mean um, to thunder or to um, humble someone, to bring someone low. It, it can have the idea of oppressing or humiliating someone simply because that's what you're trying to do in order to, I don't know, make yourself grander or show yourself to be the better wife. I don't know what's going on in Penina's mind. All we know is that she is going after Hannah, and Hannah is absolutely broken, and she's hurt, and, and she is struggling so much here that the, that the verbs here, Hannah wept, and she would not eat. This would be like going to Thanksgiving with all your family, and there's someone in the corner who will not eat because the sorrow of soul is so deep. That's what's going on. You invite someone over for a holiday meal, and someone says no, and they're just over, and they're sobbing, and they're weeping, and the other is just digging it in every opportunity they have. You, you can see Elkanah here trying to do some degree of encouragement. You know, he comes in, <coughs> and he says, Hannah, why, why, why are you crying? Her husband Elkanah asks in verse 8, why won't you eat? Why are you troubled? Am I not better to you than ten sons? And the sorrow of soul runs deep. Rest in that. Settle in that for a moment. How many of you maybe have ever experienced, maybe not that, but you've experienced such a sorrow of soul that you're just broken. You're just at a point of weeping. You're at a point of saying, oh, because not only do you feel, feel, doesn't mean it's true, but you feel as though you are not good enough. Or maybe other people are telling you you are not good enough. What do we do in moments like that? Read with me, please. Verse 9. Hannah got up after they ate and drank at Shiloh. And Eli the priest <clears throat> was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's tabernacle. Deeply hurt, Hannah prayed to the Lord and wept with many tears. Making a vow, she pleaded, Lord of hosts, the God of armies, if you will take notice of your servant's affliction, remember and not forget me and give your servant a son. I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and his hair will never be cut. While she continued praying in the Lord's presence, Eli watched her lips. Hannah was praying silently and though her lips were moving, her voice could not be heard. Eli thought she was drunk and scolded her. How long are you going to be drunk? Get rid of your wine. No, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman with a, with a broken heart. I haven't had any wine or beer. I've been pouring out my heart before the Lord. Don't think of me as a wicked woman. I've, I've been praying from the depth of my anguish and resentment. Eli responded, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant the petition you have requested from him. May your servant find favor with you, she replied. Then Hannah went her way. She ate and no longer looked despondent. So we've got a couple things going on here in the text. We've got, a, we've got Hannah who, who is weeping to the point of just incredible brokenness that, that she gets up after the meal and she goes. And, and what does she do? She goes to talk to God. She goes to petition God. She goes to get before not just a God, the Lord of 
hosts, the God of armies, the one who is powerful, the one who is strong. And she shares, um, she shares this, um, th- this growing posture towards the Lord with a lot of amazing people in the scripture. And I love the way that one commentator talks about Hannah's reality. He says, Hannah shares in a fellowship of barrenness. <clears throat> and it's frequently in this fellowship that new chapters in Yahweh's history with his people begin, begin with nothing. He says, God's tendency is to make our total inability his starting point. Our hopelessness and our helplessness are no barrier to his work. Indeed, our utter incapacity is often the prop he delights to use for his next act. So how does Hannah tap into what's most important? How how does she deal with her sense of brokenness and her sense of utter incapacity and her helplessness and her hopelessness? She goes before the Lord. In the area of Timnah, in the southern part of Israel, they have a model of the tabernacle. This is a two-scale model. She goes to something that would have looked like this. She, She comes before the altar, and she comes to worship, and she comes to pray, and she comes to say, God, I am utterly incapable of the things that are before me. She, she brings her hurt. Notice, notice what it says <clears throat> in verse 10. She, she's gotten up. Eli's sitting by the doorpost of the tabernacle. In verse 10, deeply hurt, deeply hurt, Hannah prayed to the Lord and wept with many tears. This word for pray here means to throw oneself down. In other words, she has made herself low before God the Almighty. Why? Because she has nothing left of her own. She's absolutely broken. She can't find joy in her husband. She can't find joy in her family circumstance. And so she brings all the joy, lack of joy. She brings all the pain. She brings all the grief. She brings all the sorrow. And she throws it down to the feet of the one who knows. And she prays, and she prays, and she prays. She prays so much, she prays so passionately that while she's praying, Eli, the priest, sees her lips moving. He knows she's probably just come from the fellowship meal where there was a big party going on, and and she looks, at least to him, as though uh, she is intoxicated, which gives a little glimmer, if you keep on reading in the story of 1 Samuel, it gives a little glimmer at the um, lack of spiritual sensitivity that Eli has. Because while he actually brings this, this accusation against her, why are you drunk? Why are you acting this way? He has two sons who are absolutely wrecking it and sinning against God in very grand ways that he just overlooks. So there's a little bit of a foil going on here in, in setting it up. But what we find in the text is she brings herself before the Lord with her hurt, with her pain. She throws herself down before the Lord, and she wept with many tears. And in verse 11, she makes a vow. Now, vows are very important things. Vows are one of those things in the scriptures that if you're going to make it, keep it. Like, like Jesus actually even cautions about uh, letting your yes be yes and your no, no. Like, like, be careful when you make a vow because the vows that you make, you, you hold to. And, 
And he says here, or she says here to the Lord, she says, Lord of armies, if you will take notice of your servant's affliction, if you will remember, and the idea for remember here is if you will act on my behalf, right? This isn't just like a cognitive memory thing. This is a, God, if you will act upon my behalf, and if you will not forget me, and give your servant a son, notice what she says, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. It's just kind of striking to me because here she is. She's longed for a son. She's hurting for a son. And she says, God, if you will bring a son, I will give him right back. I I, I don't know about you, but I would probably have a hard time praying that prayer. Or maybe I wouldn't have a hard time praying that prayer. I'd have a hard time following through on that prayer. Because she's saying, God, everything comes from your hand. And my tendency sometimes is to say, everything comes from your hand. Thank you, Lord, I have all this stuff now. Operative words, I have all this stuff now. (laughs) Anybody else know what I'm talking about? (laughs) But here we have someone who says, God, Here's, here's my longing. Here's my prayer. And we don't know what all of her prayers are, although we get a glimpse from the next chapter. Um, she says, here's my longing. Here's my prayer. God, if you give me a son, I'll give him right back to you. I'll give him right back to you. He will be yours. What's she doing here? It, it, it's fascinating because the son, spoiler alert, She's going to have a son. (laughs) Um, The son that she's going to have is going to be someone who God is going to use incredibly. Incredibly. But Hannah here is receiving a gift from God and quickly saying, God, this isn't mine. He's yours. And, And she engages with God in this powerful act of prayer. This powerful act of seeking God's face and seeking God's purposes and seeking God's plan in her life. She's she's petitioning a God who can take it. She's throwing herself before Yahweh, and and she's being reminded, God, you are good, you are powerful, you are in control, and God, everything that I have is yours. So we're, we're introduced to this as she pours out herself before the Lord. It's interesting here, too, is that this idea of pouring herself out before the Lord, uh, come, it's, it's used also in Psalm 42. If you want to hold your place here, you can turn over to Psalm 42. So I'm looking at 1 Samuel 1, verse 16, where it says, Don't think of me as a wicked woman. I've been praying from the depths of my anguish and resentment. The pouring her soul out to the Lord cross-references with Psalm 42. And notice how the psalmist writes in Psalm 42 about what it means to come before God. Psalm 42, if I can get there, my pages are sticking together here. In Psalm 42, the psalmist begins with this. As a deer longs for water, so I long for you, God. I thirst for God, the living God. When can I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while all day long people say to me, where is your God? Can you imagine that happening kind of in the Penina and, and Hannah story? Hannah's like beseeching God, and Penina's saying, where is your God? I, I don't know what Penina's faith relationship is. I, all I know is she's making trouble and she's kind of attacking here, going, 
See, maybe Penina is saying to Hannah, see, God doesn't hear you. See, God doesn't know. God won't act upon your behalf. Look at my kids. Look at how God has blessed me with material things. But the psalmist taps into this and says, you know, like we do have tears. We do have sorrow. We do have longings. Verse 4 is what cross-references. I remember this as I pour out my heart. How I walked with the many, leading the festive procession to the house of God with joyful and thankful shouts. And I love verse 5 because it helps us to, to learn how to deal with our emotions in a really healthy way. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Or yours might say, why am I so depressed? Why is this turmoil within me? And the psalmist says, put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. How do we deal with the sorrow of the soul? The kind, of, um, the kind of things that happen when life just does not seem fair, when things don't seem like they're working, we go to God. Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Why so within me? Put your hope in God, the psalmist tells himself. For I will yet praise him, my Savior, my God. There's something incredible that happens in our lives when in the midst of sorrow and despair, we say, but God, you are still on the throne. God, you are still in control. God, you are still powerful. You're still mighty. And God, I can trust you and I can sing and I can shout and I can proclaim and I can pray because whether I feel like it or not, you are good all the time. Whether everything is going on in my life the way I think it should or the way I hoped it would be, I can still come before the God who is living water to me. Hannah seeks favor. And, and so in this encounter back in 1 Samuel um, chapter 1, um, Eli responds to her and he says, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant the petition you've requested him. All right? May your servant find favor with you. And Hannah looked, w- went on her way. She ate and she no longer looked despondent. She'd renewed her hope in God. She, she'd renewed the, the person and the power of the Almighty in her life regardless of what would happen. Now, um, the next section, verse 19. The next morning, Elkanah and Hannah got up early to bow and worship before the Lord. Afterward, they returned home to Ramah. Then Elkanah was intimate with his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. He acted on her behalf. After some time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel because she said, I requested him from the Lord. When Elkanah and all of his household went up to make the annual sacrifice and his vow offering to the Lord, Hannah did not go and explained to her husband, after the child is weaned, I'll take him to appear in the Lord's presence to stay there permanently. Her husband, Elkanah, replied, do what you think is best and stay here until you've weaned him. May the Lord confirm your word. So Hannah stayed there and nursed her son until she weaned him. When she had weaned him, she took him with her to Shiloh as well as a three-year-old bull, half a bushel of flour, and a jar of wine. Though the boy was still young, she took him to the Lord's house at Shiloh. Then they slaughtered a bull, and they brought the boy to Eli. Please, my Lord, she said, as sure as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this boy, and since the Lord gave me what I asked him for, I now give the boy to the Lord. For as long as he lives, he has given to the Lord. Then he bowed in worship to the Lord there. 
So, so you see kind of a full cycle of things going on. In the first section, Hannah is, is broken, and she's weak, and she's sorrowful. In the second section, she's renewed in her strength. She's petitioned God. And whether God would act upon her behalf in this way or whether he would do something else, her eyes have seen the Almighty, and it's all good. It's all good. And the priest comes along and says, may the Lord do what you have asked of him. Um, the name Samuel here comes from a root which means to ask, to, to ask for from the Lord. So, so she asked God, give me a son. She names him Samuel. I have asked him from the Lord. And Samuel is born to her. And in this last section, we see Hannah be very um, obedient is one word you could say. Uh, the other word you could say is she dedicates her life and the life of her son to the purposes of Yahweh. She, she follows through on what she has said when she prayed before the Lord and she said, God, if you do this, I will give him back to you. And we find out after she weans him, she takes him to the temple, uh, to the house of the Lord, and there he stays. And uh, he's going to be a very, very important person. Uh, Samuel is going to be a person who in the time of the judges will be one of the most important prophets in Israel's history. He, he will replace a very spiritually blind and corrupt uh, family of Eli, who's the current priest. Samuel's going to call the people of God back to the worship of God. Samuel's going to install King Saul. He's also going to install King David, the greatest human king other than the King Jesus, um, in Israel's history. He's going to do incredible things to say, this is who the Lord is. This is what we've done. Or this is what he has done, and we are his people. Samuel is going to be a person who's going to stand in the gap of darkness all around, spiritual darkness in the life of the nations and in the life of Israel, and he's going to call people to light. But Samuel wouldn't be able to be there if it weren't for Hannah, who also is faithful in what God has given her to do. In fact, what I love about the story of Hannah is that um, she has a very important role to play within the kingdom story of God, and yet in this kingdom role, um, there'd be many times where she could say, well, I'll just keep him another year. I'll just, I'll just do this instead. Lord, you'll understand. But she's taken what she's vowed to the Lord and she said, I will, God, I, I will follow through in obedient worship. And her worship in obedience becomes something that God flowers into something that I'm not sure she ever could have imagined. That, that her son would be the one to anoint the King David, that's a pretty incredible thing within the story of the Bible because David does incredible things on behalf of Yahweh. All of this comes about because a person named Hannah was willing to come in her weakness and in her brokenness before the Lord, recognizing that and saying, God, I need you. In fact, you could maybe say it this way, our total inability is fertile ground for God's power, and prayer is a practice of walking boldly with God. And Hannah practices this out. 
She prays at the temple. I think she prays on her way up to the temple. I think she prays on her way home from the temple. I think she prays as she goes about her day. She takes her struggles. She takes her fear. She takes her resentment. Can you imagine the resentment that she held against Penina and how that could have eaten her alive and just kind of corrupted her soul? And yet she brought that too before the Lord. And so when they come up to make this last journey from Rama down here in the southern part, all the way up here, uh, about 16-mile journey uh, into ancient Shiloh, she comes to bring a dedication offering to the Lord to say, Lord, my son is yours. Everything I have is yours. She trusted God with everything because she knew that God was a God who could be trusted as I was thinking about this this week and just trying to think about how, how to apply that, I, I mean, Hannah joins God in something much bigger than her own story. I don't know how much she knew at the time, how, how, um, how much she knew about what the Messiah would, would look like, but there's messianic overtones to the prayer that happens in, in 1 Samuel chapter 2. We, we won't read all of this here, but as you, as you read it through, notice like in, in verse 1 uh, of chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, she says, she prays, my heart rejoices in the Lord, my horn and my strength is lifted up by the Lord, my mouth boasts over my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord, there's no one beside you. We, we get a sense of her prayer life as we read chapter 2. She is all focused upon God, no matter the cir- circumstances that she's facing. And she comes to the end of verse 10. And the, it says, in the end of verse 10, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give power to his king. The Lord will lift up the horn of his anointed. Just a small thing for future reference. This is one of the first times, I think it's the first time the word Mashiach, or the anointed one, the Messiah is used in a context that's looking forward to the future. So there's something about Hannah that's not just focused upon her circumstances, but she understands something through the word of God and through her walk with God that there's a much bigger story, spiritual story going on here, and she has eyes that are looking forward to the anointed one who would come, who would come to rule, who would come to redeem, who would come to rescue. So how do we apply this? Uh, There's there's a couple of ways I think we can apply this. The the first one is this. Um, We all have large and small ways of honoring God in our lives today. I think sometimes we see the large ones and maybe we miss the small ones. Um, Years ago, I, I heard a... Uh, there's a song by one of my favorite artists named Andrew Peterson. I was listening to a live record, and he's setting up this song called Planting Trees, and it's a song that he wrote for his wife talking about how she's doing the holy work of planting trees as a mom, and not literal trees, but like her kids. And he he retells a story about being at this conference, and he says, you know, we're gathered around in this group. He and his wife were there, and there was like pe- people with doctorates in theology and pastors. And the question's asked, what does it look like for you to push back the darkness of your time? And he's like, oh, you know, he's thinking to himself, I've got, I've got this like ability to craft stories that share the heart of the gospel. And the pastor is over there thinking, you know, I'm working on this, this sermon for Sunday. And the, and, and the doctor over there, a doctor of theology and, and, and ministry and stuff is saying, well, I'm teaching college students. And he's wondering, what's my wife going to say? And she says, I'm planting trees. I'm investing in the lives 
of my kids. That is holy, godly work that is immediate to my context. Sometimes I think we miss the, we, we miss the small things amidst the big things. We, we, we think of the big, um, the big gatherings uh, that are the life-changing moments, and those can be. But so can breakfast at your table in the morning with your kids. So can stopping to say hi to a person who looks down and saying, hey, are you okay? And taking a few minutes out of your day to express love towards someone in need. It can be working faithfully in a job that you don't really like and you don't really want to be there but through your faithful work and your constant work ethic and your, and your um, honesty and your integrity that people go, why is it that you're not like other people who live in this area or who do this kind of job? Most people try to cut corners wherever they can, but you actually do good work. I think a lot of times our faithfulness in the small things are how we have the opportunity to speak and to share the message of Jesus to a broken and dying world. How do we apply this? Hannah was a person, I believe, who pushed back the darkness. What's the darkness that is in your life, whether that be a dark area that you're gonna go into the the world this week, that God wants you to be a light? I I love how Jesus says it in, in the book of Matthew. He says to his disciples, he says, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl, but instead they put the light on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. The light that he's telling them about is their life and their walk with Jesus. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and they would praise your Father in heaven. He's saying, let the kingdom be something that is tangible in your life because of your walk with God, because you know who you are and you know what God wants you to do and you're just gonna stay faithful. Resentment's not gonna win the day. Anger's not gonna win the day. Jealousy's not gonna win the day because you know who you are in Christ. You know what God has done for you. You know how he has rescued you from death and he's brought you to life. And that brings a whole new way of living, a new way of dependence, a new way of, Lord, if you don't shine through me, I got no light in my my own self. But God, here I am and I want to shine. Where are you shining? Where's God called you to shine? Where's God called you to plant yourself for the purpose of his kingdom? The work that matters in this world is the love of Christ that is shared in word and in deed to our families, to our friends, to our broken and dying world. And we can do that because we have experienced a love. We have experienced a love that comes from God that was all in. We're gonna celebrate communion in just a minute here. And whenever we celebrate communion, we have to be reminded of what Jesus said. He says, greater love hath no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Jesus says to his disciples on that evening where they're gonna celebrate, where they've celebrated the Passover together, he says, 
love one another as I have loved you. Love is action, by the way, right? It's action motivated by God's heart for someone else, motivated by their interest, their, their Godward interest. He says, love one another as I have loved you. By this the world will know that you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. That's the kind of love that only comes from God that our world desperately needs. Pray with me, please. Lord, as we set our hearts and our minds towards celebrating communion in a moment here, may we never lose the wonder of your love. A love that gave. For God so loved the world that you gave your one and only son. God, you, you, you gave your son to be a sacrifice, an atonement for our sins. As we've sung this morning, we, we could not earn any of this. We did not deserve any of this. Our merit does not come from what achievements we have in this world. Our satisfaction, our pleasure, our, our security doesn't come from the things of this world, God. It comes from you. So Lord, as you prepare to send us out into a new week, would you teach us what it means to, to go out into the new week to be a servant? Teach us what it means to go out into a new week to, to, to be people of prayer, people whom you call, Lord, to walk with you faithfully every day, regardless of the onslaughts of the world around us, regardless of the challenging situations that we find ourselves in. God, we recognize you are on the throne, that you are good, that we can pour out our heart to you. We can find our joy in you. We can rejoice in the Lord always. Lord, would you reveal to us by your spirit the darkness that you desire for us to step into this week with the light of Christ, our Savior, our Lord, and our life. In whose name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377. 